The difference between an infrastructure breach and a data breach is the time to dwell. This is referred to the amount of time that a malicious actor is sitting inside of your corporate networks, making pivot moves and escalating privileges along the way, while also discreetly leaving back doors to make sure that they can maintain their foothold on your network. In this episode of Cyber Speaks Live, I am joined by Jared Polkins and Nathan McNulty to discuss their interesting approach to detect these malicious actors before they become too entrenched inside of your network. The open source project, Kushtaka, and this is Cyber Speaks Live. Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. And now it's time for your host, Duncan Macklin. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter, and this is another episode of Cyber Speaks Live. I am joined today by not one, not two, but three special guest co-hosts. And I can't wait to introduce each of these gents to you. With today's kickoff, I am introducing a new segment. Those of you that are longtime listeners will know that I have historically opened up the episodes with the Cyber Clusters of the Week, where we have showcase some of the major cybersecurity breaches or data breaches that have occurred in the week prior. However, after giving this due consideration, I have decided to take the podcast series in a different direction. And instead of, for lack of better term, victim shaming, which is kind of in reality what it was. I want to focus on the positivity of our community instead. I, I, I want to be able to bring on some folks that are doing things around their local areas or in the industry as a whole to be able to help others along their InfoSec journey or work with those nonprofit organizations that just need a wider audience to reach and to have their message amplified so that they can better serve those people that they're intending to help, right? So with that, I've decided to bring on today a gentleman, you know, I'm a Texan. And if, like I said, if you've been a longtime listener, you know us Texans, we support each other. We are proud people. And we love banding together in time of need. So when I look around, you know, I'm obviously an Austin boy, having transplanted myself to Houston, long story there, but basically had to keep an eye on the children of a company I was working for. And Houston has now become my home, but I've also lived in San Antonio and New Braunfels and been all over the state. But, you know, Dallas is one of the, major four metros that I've not lived in before, but I've been up there several times. And, 
you know, the more I pay attention to Twitter and what's going on in my home state, and I even have a separate list if you want to, you can subscribe to it on Twitter, but it's Texas InfoSec persons. And the more I pay attention to that list of folks, there's just some great things that are going on in the state of Texas all over our proud state. And I decided to bring on one of those gentlemen to talk about what's going on up in DFW in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So joining me in kicking off this new segment to talk about community matters and what's going on in the hacker community up in the DFW area is Wirefall. Wirefall, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for coming on today. So tell our listeners, what the hell's going on up in the uh, Big D? It is absolute chaos up here. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've, I've traveled a lot as a consultant, and what we currently have here in DFW, I mean, it's truly unlike anything I've seen anywhere. I mean, it's not even like DFW was uh, half a dozen years ago or so. Just in the past month, I've attended uh, eight different security meetups. You could you can do one or two a week easily. If you're talking about just tech, then it's almost every single day. But yep, security yep. security related, I go to an average of five or six a month, but there are many I, I just can't even make the time for. It's fantastic. Absolutely. And like you said, I, I follow the meetups around the Texas area. And Dallas just seems to be popping left and right, left and right. So what are some of the more intriguing or enticing kinds of meetups that you're attending or that you're involved in up there? Oh, you mentioned being an Austin boy. Did you ever have the opportunity to uh, attend AHA? Austin oh, abs Anonymous? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what inspired. I founded Dallas Hackers Association that we're coming up on our seventh year. And that was the impetus for it was that dynamic of AHA, which is participate or don't come, very short fire talks, just has a, a very unique vibe there. Uh, and they will admit to being a lot more elitist than we are. We have anyone just get up, if you're a noob, get up, talk about what's interesting you. Uh, but they are short fire talks, 10 minutes. Are, we have uh, Whiskey Neon, at Whiskey Neon on Twitter. He handles all the AV he has his pulse on cyberpunk and turns our venue, which is a Korean karaoke bar, into just a cyberpunk paradise. So <laughs> it's, it's a great, awesome. it, it is a great security meetup, but, and actually it's a mini con every month in that we also have a CTF. We have Lockpick run by Lockpicks and Lipsticks on Twitter. She's done a couple of the cons as well that we can talk about. But yeah, so it's a, a full experience. So I, I definitely think that's unique, something I haven't seen outside of the area. But we have our, our own, you know, our own DEFCON group, DC214. I go to that every month. Do you know Phil Wiley, Philip Wiley? Absolutely. He's been a, a guest okay. co-host a couple times on our show. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. everybody should know Philip Wiley. <laughs> I mean, but he started Pwn School. He spun that off of, out of uh, DHA and the strength of the community. His very first meetup had over 100 people, uh, which is just unheard of. Wow. So, yeah. Um, that's so, fantastic. So he has Pwn School Dallas and Pwn School Denton now, uh, spreading out, out around the Metroplex. Interesting. I wasn't aware the Denton one had popped up as well. So you hit on something that I think is one of the things that we need to address, and that's you know with 
aha and ha ha, I guess, you know, what's going on up there with you guys in Dallas. You know, one of the things that can be off-putting about these hacker associations and the meetups is that that fear that they do have to stand up there and talk or don't come, you know? And I think that can be a little bit nerve wracking for a lot of folks that have social anxiety and don't feel confident in standing in front of a live audience and and talking about anything. It's just not in their wheelhouse and they're not wired that way. What would be your comments or or recommendations to those types of folks that just don't have the skill or the desire to do that? Absolutely. Uh, Well, come out to DHA first of all, in that we'll, we'll joke about needing to participate, but to us participation is showing up try to interact with the person sitting next to you. That can be awkward for, for many of us as well, but you know, I would recommend that as the first step, just talk to the person next to you. The, the next step is you know, come up, talk to uh, the organizers, talk to more people. And at some point, you know, I really would like to see them step up and talk. This is a, you know, they'll, they'll get to see over time other people doing that, other people that definitely are not comfortable with it, that are experiencing anxiety as they do it. And they'll see that, you know, they didn't die <laughs> and that others are appreciative of the sharing of that information. And that's really the point to me is yes, I want them to feel included, but I'm, I'm also a little bit selfish. They know something I don't, and I want to know that. So I really want them to share. I have to echo your sentiment because as much as I can empathize with those that aren't comfortable in those kinds of situations, particularly having to speak in public, you know, folks, 24, gosh, 22 years ago, I started what ended up turning into the Microsoft Management Summit with over 4,000 attendees every year, but it started as the SMS Users Conference back in 1998 in Newport Beach, California with just around 100 people in attendance. That was the very first time that I ever had to speak, and before my plane landed from Nashville into California, I was so stressed about having to speak that I actually gave myself a severe kink in my neck where I I literally could not, those of you that are watching me, I was like this, you know, tilted over to the right for the first two days of that conference because I could not release that tension in my neck. Folks, I got up in front of those hundred people and for the first five minutes, all I could do was tremble and sweat and stumble over my own words. And I'm going to say this, and I hope those of you that are out there afraid of talking in our community will listen. But I actually turned my back to that audience because I had lost grip of all reality. I turned my back, I looked at the screen behind me and I just bowed my head for a moment and said, you know what? These people are nothing more than your friends and your colleagues. They just want to know what you know. Talk to them like they are your friends. I took a couple deep breaths and I turned around and before you knew it, I had fallen right into sync with where I needed to be and how I needed to be on that stage at that moment. It wasn't a perfect presentation, mind you, but it was good enough. Now, fast forward eight years in that conference that grew into 4,000 people, 
Steve Ballmer had just left the stage that I was then walking up onto to give a keynote in front of those 4,000 people and was able to rock it. It takes time, folks, and it takes effort. It takes doing it over and over again and learning from your mistakes and asking people for their critique and everything. But you can do it with just a small group like these hacker meetups where there's maybe 20 or 30 people there, or maybe there is that 100 people. But you have to start somewhere. And by being able to do these kinds of talks and present at industry events and conferences and such, it does so much for your career. So give yourself a shot, give it a chance, give it a go. The worst thing that can happen is you fall flat on your face. You pick yourself up and you do it all over again. Right. Hey, Duncan. Yeah. This is, this is Jared too. I was just going to chime in after giving some talks with the different B side events here in the Pacific Northwest I don't know if this resonates with you all, but you're kind of getting the, get, you know, getting the butterflies in the stomach type of thing. A couple of things that helped me throughout my life is any of the arts. So I kind of consider public speaking just a performance art, right? So I've shared with Nathan and Wirefall, like um, doing punk rock back in high school, right? And just doing, you know, random shows with people. I can see that being a, a net effect or doing band in high school or something like that, right? Being in front of folks. And then also the other side is for my personal style, I, I write a little um, blog post almost, but I, I, you know, riff off of that as I go and that keeps me in time. So all these kind of little anchor things like sheet music or like the practice can help you feel more secure if you, if you need that. You know, there's some practical tips that I've been using to try to anchor myself. Yeah, that's really insightful. I hadn't actually thought about that perspective of it, but that's a, a great way to kind of, uh, compare the two, I guess, you know, if you've been yeah, no. those kinds you, of activities, if, it's not a, a far stretch to take that to public speaking. Yeah. And I think too, like in the tech scene, sometimes people feel like they have to have like this absolute scientific truth about what they're saying and that there's no kind of middle ground or a little bit of grace from the audience kind of like you see in performance art or music or something like that, where if you make a, uh, a mistake and play the wrong note, you're told just to keep going. And most people aren't going to know it. And I think we kind of beat ourselves up thinking we got to be perfect speakers or perfect retainers of knowledge versus just like you were saying earlier in Wirefall, just, just get up there and give it a shot. Yeah. Be okay to fail. And you don't have to have all the answers and it's not a, uh, stump the chump scenario, you know, we're not going to attack you if uh, there's not a hundred percent clarity or a hundred percent correctness in everything that you're doing and saying, you just have to trust the process a bit. So before I, I jump into the meat of today's topic, Wirefall, there was one more bit that you're working on from a community perspective, and it's kind of fitting in with today's focus around open source software. Tell us about this Telesploit project that you've been working on. Sure. Yeah, thank you. The, this came about, I've, I've been building Dropbox. Uh, Telesploit is basically just a Dropbox that uh, has been open sourced. I've been building them for probably eight years. Started as part of uh, physical social engineering. So, uh, you know, hiding systems inside of copier surge suppressors uh, to leave behind leave and access out of band through 3G. I documented how I built these and posted them up on the, on the web. They started getting 
really popular and uh, started using them and, and building them out even more robust for actual doing full internal assessments, but being able to do that remotely. Now, uh, my wife came to me and said, that, you know, this is a business. And I told her, no, it's not. I, you know, everything's on the web. You can, you can build it yourself. It's, nobody's going to pay for that. And her response was, you know, well, everybody can cook too, but people still go to McDonald's, and that sucks. So, um, <laughs> you almost I couldn't really argue with her. Coffee there. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "You said it's not rocket science." I was like, "No, it's not rocket science. A lot of SSH tunnels and everything." She's like, "So anybody can do it." I was like, "Yes, anybody can do it." And she's like, "So it doesn't have to be you. I can get somebody else because <clears throat> this is going to be a business. Uh, do you want to be part of it?" <laughs> and uh, I like her tenacity. Yeah, that, that was the option I was given. So yeah, so I, we started this, and basically we're a, a, a security. We ship security devices, but we're a logistics company. We just enable people to use these devices. But we also give back to the open source community because it's all built on open source. And if you go up to the GitHub slash Telesploit, there will be three repositories for the server, the relay, and the client. You can build these out yourself. I did a training uh, last year at one of the local conferences, the North Texas ISSA conference, and we had 75 Raspberry Pis going live at once. It was absolute mayhem. Nice, nice. Okay, so how can folks get in touch with you? How can they learn more about the hacker scene up in Dallas? You know, give them the deets, man. So I, on Twitter, I am at DHA hole, but I am nice. The uh, <laughs> wirefall was taken by somebody that never posts. So anyway, uh, and then there is in Dallas, DFW underscore infosec. It's a basically Twitter account that has a calendar of all the upcoming events that we know about. Awesome. And we'll be sure to include links in the show notes for those of you that are listening after the fact. Waterfall, thanks for joining. Are you going to be able to stick around and participate with us? I definitely will. Anytime I can spend some time with uh, uh, you folks, uh, definitely. Perfect. We appreciate your time and everything that you're doing up there to help the hacker community in Dallas. So keep up the great work and hopefully we can have you on for another episode soon. Absolutely. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, let me get to the meat of the subject for today. So I'm joined here by Jared Falkins and Nathan McNulty. Jared, are you there? I'm here. Nathan, you good? Nathan is on mute, but we're going to assume that he's good. Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, I don't like to put words into anybody's mouth or speak for them. Do you mind just giving our listeners a brief introduction to who you are and what you're about as far as InfoSec? Jared, I'll let you go first. Sure. Yeah, so I've been doing the computer thing since uh, the dot-com bubble, and I do a lot of programming, blue team, and I also do red team stuff, pen testing and, and whatnot, application security, and a lot of tool building. So my spread there is, is about 20 years of experience. Awesome. Cool. Appreciate that. Nathan? So my name is Nathan McNulty. I'm the security architect for Beaverton School District. I started in endpoint management in uh, 2006, doing the Microsoft stack. Kind of moved up into uh, 
AD admin and then moved over to the school district where I eventually took over our, all of our cloud uh, admin stuff. So Office 365, G Suite and all that. And then about four years ago, we had an interesting BEC, got to work with the FBI and then they moved me over into security a couple of years ago officially. So it's been a great ride. Interesting. Sounds like an eventful one as well. So as I understand it, you two gentlemen are actually working together on another community-based activity around cybersecurity and the educational space. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That's correct. All right. Why don't you help our audience understand what that effort is before we jump into talking about Kushtaka? Yeah. So about, I would say three years ago, we were, I was poking around on some software and found some vulnerabilities in the education space because uh, that's where Nathan and I, are, our day jobs are currently at. And, and so when I approached the vendor about those vulnerabilities, it, it didn't really go well. It wasn't very smooth. And so out of that initial thing, I, I saw a need. And so I started to try to get people together to address that pain point of answering questions like, can K-12 secure their infrastructure? Is that too lofty of a goal? You know, is it too much to expect vendors to have some sort of uh, security model and security policy that's open to us? And so Nathan was awesome and, and jumped on board. And then we accumulated April uh, a little while back. And then <clears throat> it's kind of just grown from there online to where there's just a, a community and a hub where folks in the education space, both in higher ed and, and K-12 can kind of meet. And because it's geared towards that and it's a private com community, we do have you know, individual contributors, but it allows a little more honesty about some of the blue team side of their stack and, and how they're detecting things. And some of that stuff, you don't always want to just go sharing on, on social media. So we try right. to keep it tight knit and, and keep it as a way that people can learn. But also we do some vetting to make sure that, you know, the fit's going to be good and, and how you're employed or where you're headed and your trajectory is, is going to be a good fit. We're not trying to gatekeep. It's just trying to keep that trust. No, I can totally understand that. You know, it's the, ISACs around the world that allow for that open and trusted collaboration and intelligence sharing within those communities and serving whatever vertical or focus that ISAC may be concentrated on, right? And obviously, education, whether if you're talking K-12 or higher ed, that's a very niche market and has a very different set of requirements and needs than say corporate America or a government agency. There's a, a different threat model that exists and different data sets that are able to be compromised. And I see what you guys are doing being of tremendous need, especially when it comes to having that trusted circle that you can talk about potential vulnerabilities or exploits and be able to gain knowledge and experience from others who face the same thing. So I applaud you guys and what you're doing and helping that particular uh, segment achieving their mission of protecting and defending their organization. So how can yeah, you thanks. find out more about it or participate? Yeah, just so yeah, opsecedu.com is where they can head to and if they can tell their peers or there anybody else who's in that space, the education space, uh, that obviously is the mission. We do have some folks now 
kind of segueing into it. We've been around long enough to where it's different career paths and, and different things are branching where folks are getting into law enforcement and different things as far as their careers. But we're still keeping them on as contributors just because we trust them and, you know, we've got that relationship. So if you're not in the education space, you're still protests and see if maybe there's some way to partner up or to, to allow for a conversation because we find that we can sometimes be a little too narrow focused in what our threat models are. And so I know we appreciate the feedback from a larger group like folks like Wirefall and stuff. So, And you guys were talking earlier about being inviting and creating that community. And right. some people don't have that personality where they're willing to go to a meetup and meet new people. We try to make OPSEC EDU as inviting as possible. We believe that growth happens best in the context of community. And so we invite people who aren't necessarily in a security role, but maybe interested in security as well. It's just um, raising that security awareness throughout all the districts. So even if they aren't officially in that capacity, uh, things they learn and take back to their teams and talk about, it's just helping build um, that awareness uh, throughout all the schools. Absolutely. And I've got several close friends that are educators as well. Would you say that this organization is really more focused towards the IT SecOps folks within the school districts or the ISDs, or can regular educators become part of this because they have an interest, they, they have the concerns, they want to increase online safety awareness for their student bodies, et cetera? Can educators... Yeah, totally. So, so we're uh, part of the tribe of hackers, right? Wirefall and I, and we're in, in Marcus's uh, and Jen's red team book and kind of out of that, how Wirefall and I really got to know each other and started to form that friendship was OPSEC at you. You know, I pitched to Marcus and Jen saying, Hey, why don't we do this thing where we can get a bunch of our friends now and we can kind of speak remotely to kids and we can net, we've got all these pieces to the puzzle of networks with teachers, networks with hackers let's not make the word hacker scary. Let's bring that in. And it was just a huge event. It was called bring your ethical hacker to school. And we, we did it all remotely and it went really well. And educators were part of that, right? Teachers invited us into their classroom. They had to kind of vouch for us and say, these, these folks aren't scary. These guys or these gals or whoever, they're, they're not scary. And so, yeah, if, if we, we still have folks like that right now, and I totally plan on doing that event again, I know Nathan's looking forward to it and stuff. I'm sure Wirefall is too. So. Perfect. So we do have a question from one of our audience members. Let me throw this out there on Wirefall. If you're still listening in, you know, your input would be yeah. greatly appreciated as well. How can a person like me being physically at a far location join these committees and be part of security meetups? Now, I happen to know where this particular individual is located and it's quite a ways away from Dallas or, or Houston or Portland. So I'll, I'll throw that out there. How would you guys recommend someone who is in one of these flyover states or in another country or just in rural America where we don't have localized meetups? What, what would you recommend to them? If I can jump in first, uh, yeah, first and foremost is, uh, you know, get in Twitter. You, there's a huge community, InfoSec community, and very, you know, there, there's negativity everywhere, but overall, very, very, very positive. And there you can find out about meetups like just here in Dallas, two of them, Pwn School and North Texas Cybersecurity Group. 
stream their events. So even if you're not local, or if you're local and just don't like going out, you can join at least that way. The, the other I would say is even if you're in a rural area, like we have a Deep East Texas Security Group, they are a rural community that pull people in and have invite people like Phil Wiley to stream, you know, do a live cast with them remotely so that they can still interact with the community. You know, and honestly, there's probably more people than folks think that are interested in doing interesting things. Start something up. I mean, when Dallas Hackers started, I, I thought it was going to be maybe a dozen people talking about interesting things, and initially it was, and I would have been happy if it stayed that way. I mean, now we have 100 to 150 every month, but even if you just have a dozen people that once a month you get to hang out with and, and talk about interesting stuff. Right. And, and that is a valid point. So the streaming of online content, great. Twitter, obviously a huge InfoSec community. My InfoSec world was widely great. And when I put my bias about Twitter to the side and, and started participating actively. But, you know, don't be afraid to start your own and get some interesting things going on in your own community if they don't already exist. You know, I saw something going on in Austin where I was coming up that I really enjoyed and it was an Austin Tech Happy Hour. Well, when I moved to Houston, there wasn't anything like it there. So what did I do? I started it up. And like Wirefall was just saying, first event, there was uh, uh, 12 people there. Within a few months, though, that thing ended up growing to 100, 125, 150 people every month. You know, so don't be afraid to you know, put yourself out there, be vulnerable, and take a, a chance on starting something on your own as well. And um, I have a practical story about, I mean, real quick, it's, yeah. it, and hopefully I don't embarrass Nathan too much, but I remember, I still have the email. I have it printed off and I emailed Nathan, didn't know him. I mean, this is just cold emailing and we got to know each other through starting off SecuDU. And I was like, man, you should help lead this. And I still have it. Nathan said, I don't think I'm qualified enough to do it. And I'm like, <laughs> no, man, you can do this, right? And now if you look at Nathan on Twitter, who he's interacting with, you know, Swift and Security, Daniel UK, all these folks like Nathan's giving practical, relevant, and timely advice about how to harden a Windows AD environment. And I know that when I have questions about, you know, Windows signals, signal processing and all that stuff, I had some questions last night, texted him on Signal, and he got right back to me and gave me the input that I needed, and I trust him. But there's somebody who started out, just like if you're listening to this, just like you, thinking that they didn't have that much to maybe offer. They weren't cut out for it. And I can tell you that you're undervaluing yourself. There, there's something, you know, like Wirefall was saying that others don't. And if you take the risk, it's paid off so many times I've seen for folks. That's awesome. And a great story. Nathan, good on you there. So let's, let's get into it, Jared. Uh, you know, you've talked about red team, blue team several times already, and that you're an active participant on both sides of the fence. I kind of, find myself leaning more heavily towards the blue side because it's just in my nature to be a protector and defender. I, I have a great appreciation for those with the trade craft to go out there and do the red team kinds of things that are done. But you have developed quite an interesting open source project for 
blue teamers that is described as a way to be able to detect malicious actors on corporate networks or I guess even personal networks before they become entrenched, right? Yep. Tell me about this project and let's start with the name because it is a very unique name. And when we spoke before, you gave me the history behind it. Let's start there. Yeah. So I was just trying to think of what to call it. Right. And uh, Kushtaka comes from a tribe up here in the North Pacific Northwest. And they used to have this legend about a otter that would take different shapes, would shape shift and try to lure you in and, and, you know, steal your children basically and stuff. So I kind of thought, you know, as a, a honeypot or a sensor network, how best can I empower my friends and my peers to, to lure in the attackers once they get in? Because it definitely is, Nathan and I were, rem- or were talking about something this, this week where you think you have a handle on things and then you miss that one configuration. And so all of a sudden you've given an attacker potentially a foothold into your network. So yeah. the, the name is stemmed from that shape-shifting, trying to, t- trying to make things look like they're legit services, FTP, SSH, you know, eventually SMB shares, stuff like that, so that the attacker stumbles across them and, and tries to attack them as if they're real and you are alerted with a high-fidelity signal. Now, you did say otter, right? Correct, otter. Yep, an otter. An otter. Those cute little furry, innocent-looking <laughs> <Yep. laughs> things yep. that are going to shapeshift into some malicious thing, dragging your women and children away, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's based off is, is that legend. You can Google it too, yeah. Yep, tragedy. Yeah, and, <laughs> and once you explained that to me, the logo for it made complete sense. Love the logo. Have started playing around with this thing myself. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about how it works. And, you know, the docs, uh, we talked about this yesterday. The docs do need a a little bit of a refresh just to bring them up to speed with the current build and, and processes for standing up this. But for the general listener out there who is responsible for protecting and defending their environment. They are on that blue team side of the fence that you're promoting this towards. Talk to them about what that process of standing up the server, the sensors, what it looks like, what their options are. Because I think I got myself down a rabbit hole that I probably should have and could have avoided. (laughs) No, Uh, it's all all good feedback. Like uh, to me, I... I mean, and I know Nathan and it doesn't, as long as it's heartfelt and never, it, I never take it personally. Right. It's just to try to make the thing that you're trying to make better. Right. So and yeah, your yeah. feedback was great. It was, it was telling me, Hey, the docs need a little updating on the windows side. I got you down a rabbit hole. It's my mistake as the developer or the doc person, not yours. And so it's great feedback as well as maybe for the other type of learners we talked about, right. A video, but speaking right. to the blue team, like, you know, the reason that, Having having seen both sides of that of that fence, one thing that I suffer from, and I know Nathan does on the blue team side, is that when you are trying to spin up a service, right? When someone wants you to spin up a web server or a website, or they want you to, you know, spin up a new ERP system or a new information system or some sort of Salesforce thing, right? A lot of times you have a very finite window to do that, and you're not really given a lot of time to secure it or harden it or to even maintain it. 
And so knowing this is kind of simplicity is, is the underlying principle of Kushtaka. The quicker I can get Kushtaka running for you and working on your infrastructure, as well as removing the friction of updating it and maintaining it to where I'm now, like if that force multiplier, as Marcus Carey says, where I'm, I'm actually advantaging you to keeping it on your infrastructure as, as for partnering with you. That's kind of the initial, you know, the, the underlying principle of, of it all. So as far as installing it goes, there's a PowerShell script that Nathan contributed that does a great job for the Windows side. There's a uh, snap that I, I'm using on the Canonical Linux stuff, uh, Ubuntu or Debian stack. And so that those commands are right there where you can copy paste them in and you can get them, uh, get Kushtaka going. But underneath the hood, uh, Kushtaka is unique in that it's, it's using a single executable, a single binary principle, right? You tell it to run either in server mode, which is you only need one server running as the aggregator, um, or you tell it to run in sensor mode and sensors will reach out to your server and pull down their configs but the server acts as the way to distribute alerts to your team. Again, coming from the perspective of K-12 or education, not a lot of time, not a lot of resources, not a lot of money, trying to make this thing maintainable for a team, right? The other perspective I hold is there's people that are passionate about their little niche, but then when it comes to empowering their team to actually maintain something, sometimes that's, you know, that's not, not a lot of thought is given to that. So Kushtaka tries to do to meet that need as well to where you can put in extra users, extra uh, folks to alert. And it does this in a really, I think, elegant and also kind of sexy way. It looks good. And so the the final thought there as far as the UI and and the look and aesthetics is if you got to pitch this to your stakeholders, right? I've been in plenty of meetings where something practical could work, but it doesn't look hot. And so it just doesn't get picked up. Whereas Kushtaka not only gives you practical values and practical value and practical senses that scale, but you can go to your stakeholders and say, look how, look at this thing. And they're going to be like, wow, that looks awesome. This, this looks like somebody cares about it. It's just not. It looks professional. Right. Now you used a key word there that I want to jump back to and that's scale, right? So Mm -hmm. anytime you're talking to client server technology with my enterprise management background, immediately I start wondering, okay, but as great as it sounds, how well can it scale? And how many sensors can I have in an environment reporting back to a single server? And do I need a lot of sensors or do I just need representation in different network segments or business units? Or do I use your team's capability to split that off and have separate servers and sensors for those teams. Can, can you talk to that point a little bit? Yeah, maybe Nathan can talk to that one because he's been messing around with trying to think about segmentation and stuff on his infrastructure. Nathan, do you have any yeah. thoughts? Yeah, definitely. So we've got a couple of thoughts there. The first one in our environment, we're not like super heavily uh, micro-segmented, but we do have like services nets for HVAC. We've got a separate one for cameras, separate one for printers, separate one for clients, separate one for phones, you know, all that. Being able to place sensors into each of those networks and then have those feedback to the console or the, the server is pretty great. And then the second thought that I had on that is we in education have these things called uh, ESDs. Some places call them like CSDs, but they're uh, centralized service districts that provide services to small school districts that um, can't afford their own IT staff. Um, Maybe they can't even have one. So think of MSSP, right? Or MSP. 
so one of the difficulties they run into is a, a lot of the network boundaries all overlap and they're some of the networks are like at a prison system for the juvenile you know whatever so how do we get all these sensors deployed out to networks that we don't really have great visibility into and so kushtaka fills a really great gap there of um, being able to feed all that information to like a cloud console maybe running out of azure and still gives them that visibility and that alerting now that's an interesting prospect that I hadn't considered. I, I guess I was all in the on-prem mindset, but yeah, I could see this being used in a AWS or Azure environment, uh, potentially even using their SMTP server for notification. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the nice thing is with that single binary principle and when it installs, right, I don't, blast a bunch of DLLs or I don't need a bunch of .so like shared libraries on Linux, right? It's all packaged up into a statically compiled executable. And the elegant thing there is that you know the state of your world as a state machine. This is the application that's running. And that's really powerful from a development perspective, but also from a support perspective as somebody that's had to wade through like, oh, what library you got installed on this server? Which one's over here, right? That's, that's a huge beast to try to unwind. But what you're touching on is that the nice thing about that elegance is that you can put it in the cloud, you can put it on-prem, uh, you can feedback your networks to, to your uh, server is to get you the alerts that you need. And you just got my wheels spinning and my mind's going a thousand miles an hour right <laughs> now, but forgive me, want to concentrate on one other piece to this and try to, I guess, just call out what I'm seeing as like the pink elephant in the room. And mm -hmm. that's the single point of failure. As I was going through the docs, it may be something's different at this point, but mm -hmm. fill in the blank for me because as I'm seeing it, there's only the single notification channel and that's email notifications through a single SMTP server, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not a fallback for like an SMS gateway to be able to send a text message. You know, if it ends up being your SMTP server itself that becomes compromised, then all your alerting gets shut off. So sure. is that a realistic understanding of a potential issue with it? Yeah, no, I think, I think, again, it's a great question. So two thoughts. One most people's threat model, it's, pro I mean, as far as if Kushtak is, the simplicity is trying to, I mean, I think it's going to work great for big enterprise companies, but at the same time, I really am passionate about helping the SMBs, right? The, uh, the right. underfunded folks. If it helps enterprise, that's great. I done, you know, load bearing scaling tests. It's using, you know, I programmed it in Go. It's fast. Like we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of requests per second, right? It's fast. And I've done massive deployments with Go, not with Kushtaka for years. So I know my trust is there and it's not unfounded. But as far so, so, you know, threat modeling it out, yes, that could happen. I've got plans down the, you know, down the road as far as that other products call them different things. I'm looking at that term called actions, right? So if, if I can have a little lightweight DSL, a little structured language that you can ingest an alert and feed it off now to your SIM or your, uh, sorry, your SIM, or you can feed it off to an SMS gateway or to a webhook API, whatever you want. Those are some of the things that are kind of, you know, brewing my head, but just to get something started again, going back to that, trying to encourage folks to 
just jump in and speak, right? A lot mm-hmm. of times you just got to start. And where I was yeah, six, yeah. Months, six months ago is, you know, it looks quite a bit different. And luckily I've got friends like Nathan who are like, you know, this is awesome. This is looking good. This is working. This is what's not working. Like you mm-hmm. were saying, hey, the documentation needs updating and stuff. So, yeah, um, in yeah. the world of product management, we call it MVP, right? Minimally yep. viable product. And you absolutely have that. Please do not misunderstand what I am saying. I am sure. yeah. a big fan of what you're doing. And I think it definitely fulfills the need that these mid-market kind of consumers, and when I say mid-market, I mean that small, medium-sized business environment definitely needs something like this to be able to help them detect these data breaches, infrastructure breaches a hell of a lot sooner because, you know, the the average varies depending upon which study you're looking at, whether if it's the FBI, Ponymon Institute, you know, Verizon, but anywhere between 68 to 200 plus days that these threat actors are dwelling inside of our networks. And what this project does is obviously helps detect these infrastructure breaches a hell of a lot sooner so that an infrastructure breach, which is inevitable, folks, if you think you're not going to be hacked, you are delusional. Your networks are going to become compromised if they haven't already. The difference is, and I'm going to go back to something that Sam Curry taught in the Harvard University Cybersecurity Risk Management Program that I was in. And Sam Curry is one of the executives with Cyber Reason. And I'm bringing them up because I see a lot of similarities in the behavior of what their ransomware protection product does and what you guys are doing with Kushtaka. Am I saying it right, Kushtaka? Yeah, no, you got it. Okay. Very similar in approach. But he said that an infrastructure breach does not have to necessarily become a data breach, right? Yeah. And that is so significant. So, folks, I'm going to repeat it. An infrastructure breach does not have to become a data breach. And the difference there is the time to detection. The less time they spend dwelling inside of your networks, the less pivot moves they're going to be able to make from one system to the next, the less privilege escalation they're going to obtain along the way from standard user to domain admin or root. You know, the the simple mechanics of how hackers, or excuse me. Criminals? Yeah, (laughs) cyber criminals are behaving and acting on our networks, you're going to be able to detect that a lot sooner. Now, let's talk about the actual mechanics of how that detection takes place, Jared. There's some very strong similarities between what you're doing in this free open source product and what is commercially available from several other vendors out there, including the one that I've already mentioned, Cyber Reason. And that is essentially watching for particular files to be touched. Is that correct? So, so yeah, Kushtaka has two different primary techniques. It's got sensors that sit on your network with a socket open, pretending to be a, some sort of service and emulating that service reasonably well that an attacker is going to hopefully trip over it, touch it, and then you get an alert. And it's high fidelity. It's not that, you know, that fire hose stuff. 
Yeah, and we're uh, talking the types of stuff that they would be looking for, like web servers, FTP servers. Uh, sure. Yep. What yeah, some the, of the others? So right right now, I, I've just got I do have uh, four. I just finished up the SSH one. I was telling Nathan last night, which is kind of cool, and I'm I'm marching towards just adding those services as I as I get time. I've been doing some in an internal plumbing a little bit to to prep for some stuff that's in my head. So FTP, Telnet, uh, Web, SSH. But again, considering some of my ideas with the HTTP sensor, like, you know, what I've tried to do is allow a user to get a rough clone of a website. So I'll give you an example, right? So I've got my Palo Alto firewall VPN portal, right? That everybody's pretty familiar with that in the enterprise space of that login screen when you go to it. And so I can take Kushtaka, I can point it at that whatever the domain is, so vpn.example.com. I can clone the HTML from that, and then I could rename this testvpn.example.com, right, for the host name, and put it only in my DMZ or only in my internal network. And as the attacker is scanning, they see something that looks like a Palo Alto endpoint. Uh, so they're going to probe it more, which is going to give you a higher fidelity signal than just a quick NMAP scan or something like that. And that would allow your, your team to you know, evaluate the IP address, see why that is why this IP address is contacting a sensor that nobody should know about, and then put a stop to it. So yeah, there's a practical example. On the, on the other side, it, it's got the primitive of tokens, right? So web tokens right now, PDFs and, and docx. And so it allows you to place these files on your, again, your internal infrastructure. But if you use, say, the example of, uh, I don't know, passwords.docx or uh, employee salaries.pdf, if you were to rename these, these tokens as something attractive to the attacker, when they get in, they're going to open those files and alert you uh, based on how everything's configured. It's, it's basically a callback from those files. But yeah, so you, you're getting these high fidelity signals different than a SIM, which is, is managing a volume of alerts or a log host or something like that, or elk or whatever. This is really trying to just ratchet down to those, those high fidelity internal alerts. And you can do that because you control the state of your environment. If you're on the blue team and you don't think you've got a shot, I've been kind of encouraging folks to think of it a lot like the movie Inception and the dream world. You're the operator. Once they breach your infrastructure, you have the opportunity to be the operator of the dream world. You can move that attacker. If you know the host that they're on, you can move them to a segmented network to evaluate further what they're doing. And, you know, you can control their reality greatly once you detect them. And so there's oppor there's plenty of opportunity there if people would just recognize it. That's awesome. And Nathan, that's actually kind of your role using this in your environment, right? You're weaving the dream, so to speak, and using this in a production scenario. So can you tell us what some of your experiences and the benefits that you've received using Kushtaka for the school district? I can. I think it's helpful to have a little bit of context around it too. So we have a little over 40,000 students who are constantly doing NMAP scans and it's difficult. Good on to, them. Get started <laughs> young. There you go. You know, and they have to be able to connect to the network. They have to be able to use their USB sticks when they come into lab classes and they're working on three gig, you know, files um, for uh, whatever AutoCAD or uh, whatever things that they're playing with, right? 
so we allow these USB sticks, but they also have their cracked video games on them. And they're coming in with all kinds of malware and it's kicking off and whatever. So it's really hard. We want to have that high fidelity alert because the SIM, I mean, I'm the only guy to manage it all. So building that up, uh, building up NSM, building up all of the other systems that we have in EDR, it takes a lot of time. And this is helping me kind of have a little bit of uh, peace, I guess, as I'm trying to, trying to get all these things up and running. I know that there's something that's going to give me high fidelity alerts. And when that goes off, then I know that something important, there's something really important to go look at rather than relying on uh, my ability to build a SIM and, and the alerting capabilities. And, and there's another concept. Oh, go ahead, Warhol. Just to bring up something that Jared and I had talked about he in the when we were doing the educational bring your ethical hacker to school day, that one of his focuses was this early detection of catching the students before they do something actually illegal so you can educate them. Super yeah, important. that's awesome. You, you read my mind. I was about to say that. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, that it, is... It, and, and, and we've done that, right? And not, in a, we won't have to go into detail, but that has been done with a honeypot, right? A rogue device, a, a, a student is, is having fun, is exploring. I, I know Nathan and I are passionate, passionate about letting that kid explore, but also like any parent or role model or mentor, putting those correct gates is really hard in cyber, right? Because pretty soon we've seen it time and time again, maybe not internally, but sibling districts across the nation, right, will suddenly have a student who hacked one thing to the next and chained it and now is, you know, changing grades for their friends and themselves. And all of a sudden federal, you know, law enforcement's involved and it gets really ugly and really sticky. So like Wirefall was saying, allowing those high fidelity signals to say, oh, this is a student machine this is who was logged in. Let's go converse and see if we can direct them to hack the box or something where it's like, there's a productive for, way for you to be awesome. And let's just get you going. Yep. Absolutely. And for those that happen to be of the female identity and, and persuasion, there's also one that we just learned of on our last episode, Go Girls Cyber Start which is an excellent program for young ladies wanting to explore cybersecurity and InfoSec as a potential career opportunity or just because they have the interest in it. It's a great scholastic program for being able to get them into these competitions and exploring their hacking skills and being able to put that on a platform that gives them some capabilities and exposures in a safe and learning environment. So for those of you that are interested, again, that is Go Girls Cyber Start. And that is actually fully funded and supported by SANS Institute. So thank you to them for making that a reality and a possibility for many young ladies out there. That's cool. Yeah, we're coming up with just a few minutes left before the top of the hour. I do want to make sure that we get in an opportunity for folks to be able to get in touch or follow you guys. So before we have any closing remarks, Jared, how can folks get in touch with you, follow Kushtaka and its development and just be part of watching this thing grow and develop? Sure. Yeah. So jaredfalkins.com is just kind of a landing page for me and you can find any of the projects I'm involved in, Twitter, GitHub, blog, all that stuff from there they can launch from. So 
Excellent. That's Jared Fulkins.com. Yep. Yep. And I will have that in the show notes. Nathan, you're up. Yep. Nathan McNulty. You can follow me on Twitter at Nathan McNulty. Easy enough there. All right, guys. So I always like to give a last opportunity for any closing comments, recommendations, suggestions before we get into any final Q&A that may have not already been addressed by my wonderful co-panelist and assistant. Jared, anything from your side? Yeah, I would just say a question I've been getting asked a lot recently is, when can you get this stuff going? And as far as honeypots, and I think you really should look at it today. And even if it's not Kushtaka, you should look at something uh, that will aggregate those signals for you. It's, it's going to give you a different layer of visibility and defense that maybe you're not taking advantage of yet or, or discounted. So take a look. Perfect. Nathan, you're up, bud. Jared's right. You should be running a honeypot. Get those alerts. I've played with some of the others, biased, right? But I really enjoy the way that Jared set his up due to the simplicity. I don't have to spend a lot of time looking at it. I just know when I get my email alerts that there's something going on. I don't want to have to spend the time that I should be dedicating to all of the other security controls I'm missing. So definitely look for something that's simple, easy, that you know you can manage and do well. Absolutely. And I fully support that approach. For those that have asked in the Q&A, I have just supplied the link to be able to download or get to the bits for Kushtaka. So that is in the Q&A panel. And of course, we will include it in the show notes. So, Wirefall, Jared, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about all these important efforts that are going on in the InfoSec community. I applaud your efforts. Keep up the great work. We're all huge fans of what you're doing to help protect and defend organizations around the country and around the world. For those of you that have joined and still sticking around, thank you so much. This show is put on for you to give the InfoSec community a voice that can be heard around the world. We appreciate your participation and hope to see you in a future episode. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, it's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyber Speaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.